Tatterhood. Once upon a time, there was a king and queen who had no children, and this grieved the queen very much. She was always bewailing their lack of family, saying how lonesome it was in the palace with no young ones about. The king remarked that if it were young ones she wanted running about, she could invite the children of their kinswoman to stay with them. The queen thought this was a good idea, and soon she had two little nieces romping through the rooms and playing in the palace courtyard. One day, as the queen watched fondly from the window, she saw her two lassies playing ball with a stranger, a little girl clad in tattered clothes. The queen hurried down the stairs. Little girl, said the queen sharply, this is the palace courtyard. You cannot play in here. We asked her in to play with us, cried the lassies, and they ran over to the ragged little girl and took her by the hand. You would not chase me away if you knew the powers my mother has, said the strange little girl. Who's your mother, asked the queen, and what powers does she have? The child pointed to a woman selling eggs in the marketplace outside the palace gates. If she wants to, my mother can tell people how to have children when all else has failed. Now this caught the queen's attention at once. She said, tell your mother I wish to speak to her in the palace. The little girl ran to the marketplace. And it was not long before a tall, strong market woman strode into the queen's sitting room. Your daughter says you have powers and that you could tell me how I may have children of my own, said the queen. The queen should not listen to a child's chatter, answered the woman. Well, sit down, said the queen, and she ordered fine food and drinks to be served. Then she told the egg woman she wanted children of her own more than anything in the world. The woman finished her ale, then said cautiously that perhaps she would know a smell that could do no harm to try. You must have two pails of water brought to you before you go to bed, said the egg woman. In each of them you must wash yourself, and afterward pour away the water under the bed. When you look under the bed the next morning, two flowers will have sprung up, one fair and one rare. The fair one you must eat, but the rare one you must let stand. Mind you, don't forget that. The queen followed this advice, and the next morning, under the bed stood two flowers. One was green and oddly shaped, the other was pink and fragrant. The pink flower she ate at once. It tasted so sweet she promptly ate the other one as well, saying to herself, I don't think it can help or hurt either way. Not long afterward, the queen realized she was with child, and some time later, she had the birthing. First was born a girl who had a wooden spoon in her hand and rode upon a goat. That's me. A queer-looking little creature she was, and the moment she came into the world, she bawled out, Mama! If I'm your mama, said the queen, God give me grace to mend my ways. Oh, don't be sorry, said the girl riding about on the goat. The next one born will be much fairer-looking. And so it was. The second twin was born fair and sweet which pleased the queen very much. The twin sisters were as different as they could be, but they grew up to be very fond of one another. Where one was, the other must be. But the elder twin soon had the nickname Tatterhood, for she was strong, racious, and careless, and was always racing about on her goat. Her clothes were always torn and mud-spattered, her hood in tatters, no one could keep her in clean, pretty dresses. She insisted on wearing old clothes, and the queen finally gave up and let her dress as she pleased. One Christmas Eve, when the twin sisters were almost grown, there arose a terrific noise and clatter in the gallery outside the queen's room. Tatterhood asked what it was, 
that dashed out and crashed around in the passage. The queen told her it was a pack of trolls who'd invaded the palace. The queen explained that this happened in the palace every seven years. There was nothing to be done about the evil creatures. The palace must all ignore the trolls and endure their mischief. Tatterhood said, nonsense, I'll go out and drive them away. Everyone protested. She must leave the trolls alone, they're far too dangerous, but Tatterhood insisted she wasn't afraid of the trolls. She could and would drive them away. She warned the queen that all doors must be held tight shut. Then she went out into the gallery to chase them. She laid about with a wooden spoon, whacking trolls on the head or shoulders, rounding them up to drive them out. The whole palace shook with the crashes, the shrieking, till it seemed the place would fall apart. Just then, her twin sister, who was worried about Tatterhood, she opened a door and struck out her head to see how things were going. Pop! Up came the troll, whipped off her head, and stuck a calf's head on her shoulders instead. The poor princess ran back into the room on all fours and began to moo like a calf. When Tatterhood came back and saw her sister, she was very angry that the queen's attendants had not kept better watch. She scolded them all around and asked what they thought of their carelessness now that her sister had a calf's head. I'll see if I can get her free from the troll's spell, said Tatterhood, but I'll need a good ship in full trim and well fitted with stores. Now the king realized his daughter Tatterhood was quite extraordinary, despite her wild ways, so he agreed to this. But said, they must have a captain, they must have a crew. Tatterhood was firm. She would have no captain or crew. She would sail the ship alone. At last they let her have her way, and Tatterhood called off with her sister. With a good wind behind them, she sailed right to the land of the trolls and tied up at the landing place. She told her sister to stay quite still on board the ship, but she herself rode her goat right up to the trolls' house. Through an open window, she could see her sister's head on the wall. In a trice, she leapt the goat through the window and into the house, snatched the head, and leapt back outside again. She set off with it, and after her came the trolls. They shrieked and swarmed about her like angry bees. But the goat snorted and butted with his horns, and Tatterhood smacked them with her magic wooden spoon until they gave up and let her escape. When Tatterhood got safely back to their ship, she took off the calf's head, put her sister's own bonny head back on again, now her sister was once more human. Let's sail on and see something of the world, said Tatterhood. Her sister was of the same mind, so they sailed along the coast, stopping at this place and that, until at last they reached a distant kingdom. Tatterhood tied up the ship at the landing place. When the people of the castle saw the strange sail, they sent down a messenger to find out who sailed the ship and whence it came. The messenger started to find no one on board but Tatterhood. They were startled, and she was riding around the deck on her goat. When they asked if there was someone else on board, Tatterhood answered that yes, she had her sister with her. The messenger asked to see her, but Tatterhood said no. They asked, would the sister come to the palace for an audience with the king and the two sons? No, said Tatterhood. Let them come down to the ship if they wish to see us. And she began to gallop about on her goat until the deck thundered. The elder prince became curious about the strangers and hastened down to the shore the very next day. When he saw the fair younger twin, he promptly fell in love with her and wanted to marry. No, indeed, she declared, I will not leave my sister Tatterhood. I will not marry until she marries. The prince went glumly back to the castle, for in his opinion, no one would want to marry the odd creature who rode a goat and looked like a ragged beggar. 
but hospitality must be given to strangers, so the two sisters were invited to a feast at the castle, and the prince begged his younger brother to escort Tatterhood. The younger twin brushed her hair and put on her finest kirtle for the event, but Tatterhood refused to change. You could wear one of my dresses, said her sister, instead of that raggedy cloak and old boots. Tatterhood just laughed. You might take off that tattered hood and the sit streaks from your face, said her sister crossly, for she wanted her beloved tatterhood to look her best. Now, said tatterhood, I will go as I am. All the people of the town turned out to see the strangers riding up to the castle, and a fine procession it was. The head rode the prince and tatterhood's sister on fine white horses draped in cloth of gold. Next came the prince's brother on a splendid horse with silver trappings. Beside him rode Tatterhood on her goat. Well, you're not much for conversation, said Tatterhood. Haven't you anything to say? Well, what's there to talk about, he retorted. They rode on silence until finally he burst out. Why do you ride on a goat instead of a horse? Since you happen to ask, said Tatterhood. I can ride on a horse if I choose. At once the goat turned into a fine steed. Well, the young man's eyes popped wide open and he turned to look at her with great interest. Why do you hide your head beneath the ragged hood, he asked. Oh, is it a ragged hood? I can change it if I choose, she said. And there, on long dark hair, was a circlet of gold and tiny pearls. What an unusual girl you are. But that wooden spoon, why do you choose to carry that? Oh, is this a spoon? And with her hand, the spoon turned into a gold-tipped wand of rowan wood. I see, said the prince's brother. He smiled and hummed a little tune as they rode on. At last, Tatterhood said, Aren't you going to ask me why I wear these ragged clothes? No, said the prince. It's clear you wear them because you choose to. And when you want to change them, you will. And that, Tatterhood's ragged cloak disappeared. She was clad in a velvet green mantle and kirtle. But the prince just smiled and said, The color becomes you very well. When the castle loomed up ahead, Tatterhood said to him, And will you not ask to see my face behind the streaks of soot? That too shall be as you choose. As they rode through the castle gates, Tatterhood touched the rowan wand to her face, and the soot streaks disappeared. And whether her face now is lovely or plain, we shall never know, because it didn't matter in the least to the prince's brother or to Tatterhood. But this I can tell you, the feast of the castle was a merry one, with the games and the singing and the dancing lasting for many days. Just in time for quarantine, the poet by Herman Hesse. Only on me, the lonely one, the unending stars of the night shine. Stone fountain whispers its magic song to me alone, to me, the lonely one. The colorful shadows of the wandering clouds move like dreams over the open countryside. Neither house nor farmland, neither forest nor hunting privilege is given to me. What is mine belongs to no one. 
the plunging brook behind the veil of the woods, the frightening sea, the bird whir of children at play, the weeping and singing lonely in the evening of a man secretly in love. The temples of the gods are mine also, and mine, the aristocratic groves of the past, and no less the luminous vault of heaven in the future is my home. Often in full flight of longing, my soul storms upward to gaze on the future of blessed men, love overcoming the law, love from people to people. I find them all again, nobly transformed, farmer, king, tradesman, busy sailors, shepherd and gardener, all of them gratefully celebrate the festival of the future world. Only the poet is missing. The lonely one who looks on, the bearer of human longing, the pale image of whom the future, the fulfillment of the world, has no further need. Many garlands wilt on his grave, but no one remembers him. Day for Banana Fish by J.D. Sand. There were 97 New York advertising men in the hotel and the way they were monopolizing the long distance lines. The girl in 507 had to wait from noon till almost 2.30 to get a call through. She used the time though. She read an article in the woman's pocket size magazine called Sex is Fun or Hell. She washed a comb and brush. She took the spot out of her skirt of her beige suit. She moved the button on a sex blouse. She tweezed out two freshly surfaced tails in her mouth. When the operator finally rang her room, she was sitting on the windowsill and had almost finished putting lacquer on the nails of her left hand. She was a girl who, for a ringing phone, dropped nothing. She looked as if her phone had been ringing continually ever since she had reached puberty. With her little lack of brush while the phone was ringing, she went over the nail of her little finger, accentuating the line of the moon. She then replaced the cap on the bottle of lacquer and standing up, passed her left, the wet hand, back and forth. You have it? Are you sure? said the girl. Certainly that is. I have it. It's in Freddy's room. You left it here and I didn't have room for it in the... Why? Does he want it? No, only he, he asked me about it when we were driving down. He wanted to know if I'd read it. It was in German. Y- yes, dear, that doesn't make any difference, said the girl, crossing her legs. She said that the poems happened to be written by the only great poet of the century. He said I, I should have bought a translation or something or learned the language, if you please. Awful, awful. It's sad, actually, is what it is. Your father said last night, just just wait a second, mother, said the girl. She went over to the window seat for her cigarettes, lit one, and returned to her seat on the bed. Mother, she said, exulting smoke. Muriel, now listen to me. I'm listening. Your father talked to Dr. Savinsky. Oh, said the girl. He told him everything. At least he said he didn't know... 
You know your father, the trees, that business with the window. Those horrible things he said to Granny about her plans for passing away. When he did all those lovely pictures from Bermuda. Everything. Well, said the girl. Well, in the first place, he said it is a perfect crime the army released him from the hospital. My word of honor. He very definitely told your father there's a chance, a very great chance, he said, that Simon may completely lose control of himself. My word of honor. There's a psychiatrist here at the hotel, said the girl. Who, what's his name? I, I don't know, Riser or something? He's supposed to be very good. Never heard of him. Well, he's supposed to be very good anyway. Muriel, don't be fresh, please. We're very worried about you. Your father, he wanted to wire you last night to come home as a matter of fact. I'm, I'm not coming home right now, Mom. So please just relax. Muriel, my word of honor, Dr. Savitsky said Simon may completely lose control. I just got here, Mom. This is the first vacation I've had in years, and I'm not going to just pack everything and come home, said the girl. I couldn't travel anyway. I'm so sunburned, I can hardly move. You're badly sunburned. Did you use that jar of bronze I put in your bag? I put it right... I used it. I, I'm burned anyway, Mother. That's terrible. Where are you burned? All over, dear. All over. That's terrible. I'll, I'll live. Tell me, did you talk to the psychiatrist? Well, sort of, said the girl. What'd he say? Where was Simo when you talked to him? In the ocean room playing the piano. He played the piano both nights we've been here. Well, what'd he say? Oh, nothing much. I mean, he spoke to me at first. I was sitting next to him at bingo last night, and he asked me if that wasn't my husband playing the piano in the other room, and I said, yes, it was. And he asked me if Seymour had been sick or something. So I said, wait, why'd he ask that? I don't know, Mother. I guess because he's so pale and all, said the girl. Anyway, after bingo, he said him and his wife would like me to join them for a drink. So I did. His wife was horrible. You remember that awful dinner dress we saw at Bonwit's window? The one you said you'd have to have a tiny, tiny... Oh, the green? Yeah, she had it on. And all hips. She kept asking me if Seymour related to that Suzanne Glass that has that place on Madison Avenue. You know, the millinery? Well, what'd he say, though? The doctor? Well, nothing much, really. I, I mean, we were in the bar and all. It was terribly noisy. Yes, but did did you tell him what he tried to do with Granny's chair? No, Mother, I, I didn't go into details very much. I'll probably get a chance to talk to him again. He's in the bar all day long. Did he say he thought there was a chance he might get, you know, funny or something? Do something to you? Not exactly, said the girl. He had just... He had the facts, you know, Mother. They they, they have to know about your childhood. They have to know all that stuff. I told you, we could hardly talk. It was so noisy in there. Well, how's your blue coat? It's all right. I, I had some of the padding taken out. How are the clothes? All the clothes. This year, this season, terrible, but out of this world. You see sequins on everything, said the girl. How's your room? All right, just all right, though. We couldn't get the room that we had before the war, that's for sure. The people are awful this year. You should see what sits next to us in the dining room. At the next table, they look as if they drove down in a truck. Well, it's that way all over. How's your ballerina? 
it's too long. I told you it was too long. Muriel, I'm only going to ask you this once more. Are you really all right? Yes, mother, said the girl. For the 19th time. And you don't want to come home? No, no, mother. Your father said last night that he'd be more than willing to pay for it if you go someplace by yourself and think things over. You could take a lovely cruise. We both thought, no, no, thanks, said the girl crossed and uncrossed her legs. Mother, this call is costing a fort. Well, I think of how you waited for that boy all through the war. I mean, you think of all those crazy little wives who... Mother, said the girl, we'd better hang up. Seymour may come in any minute. Where is he? On the beach. On the beach by himself? Does he behave himself on the beach? Mother, said the girl, you talk about him as though he were a raving maniac. (laughs) Well, I said nothing of the kind, Muriel. Well, you sound that way. I mean, all he does is lie there. He won't take his bathrobe off. He won't take his bathrobe off? Why not? For God's sakes. I don't know, I guess because he's so pale. My goodness, he needs the sun. Can't you make him? You know Seymour, said the girl, and crossed her legs again. He says he doesn't want a lot of, you know, fools looking at his tattoo. He doesn't have a tattoo. Did he get one in the army? No, mother, no, dear, said the girl, and stood up. Listen, I'll call you tomorrow. Maybe. Muriel, now listen to me. Yes, mother, said the girl, putting her weight on her right leg. Call me the instant he does or says anything at all funny. You know what I mean. Do you hear me? Mother, I'm not afraid to see more. Muriel, I want you to promise me. All right, I promise. Goodbye, mother, said the girl. My love to daddy. And she hung up. See more glass, said Sybil Carpenter, who was staying at the hotel with her mother. Did you see more glass? Pussycat, stop saying that. I'm driving mommy absolutely crazy. Hold still, please. Mrs. Carpenter was putting suntan oil on Sybil's shoulders spreading it down over the delicate wing-like blades of her back. Sybil was sitting insecurely on a huge inflated beach ball facing the ocean. She was wearing a canary yellow two-piece bathing suit, one piece of which she could not exactly be needing for another nine or ten years. It was really just an ordinary silk handkerchief. And you could see when you got up close. In the chair besides Mrs. Carpenter... I wish I knew how she tied it. It was really darling. It sounds darling, Mrs. Carpenter agreed. Sybil, hold still, pussy. Did you see more glass? Said Sybil. Mrs. Carpenter sighed. All right, she said. She placed the cap on the suntan oil bottle. Now run and play, pussy. Mama's going to the hotel and have a martini with Mrs. Hubble. I'll bring you the olive. Set loose. Sybil immediately ran down to the flat part of the beach and began to walk in the direction of Fisherman's Pavilion. Stopping only to sink a foot in a soggy, collapsed castle, she was soon out of the area reserved for guests of the hotel. She walked for about a quarter of a mile and then suddenly broke into an oblique run up the soft part of the beach. She stopped short when she reached the place where a young man was lying on his back. Are you going in the water? See more glass? She said. The young man started, his right hand over to the lapels of his terracloth robe. 
He turned over on his stomach, letting a sausage towel flail away from his eyes and squinted up at Sybil. Hey, hello, Sybil. Are you going in the water? I was waiting for you, said the young man. What's new? What? said Sybil. What's new? What's on the program? Well, my daddy's coming tomorrow on an airplane. An airplane? Sybil said, kicking sand. Not in my face, baby, the young man said, putting his hand on Sybil's ankle. Well, it's about time he got here, your daddy. I've been expecting him hourly. Hourly, really. Where's the lady, Sybil said. The lady? The young man brushed some sand out of his thin hair. That's hard to say, Sybil. She may be in one of a thousand places. At the hairdresser's, having her hair dyed mink, making dolls for poor children in her room, lying prone now. He made two fists, set one on top of the other, and rested his chin on the top one. Ask me something else, Sybil, he said. That's a fine bathing suit you have on. If there's one thing I like, it's a blue bathing suit. Sybil stared at him, then looked down at her protruding stomach. This is yellow, she said. This is a yellow. It is? Come a little closer. Sybil took a step forward. You're absolutely right. What a fool I am. Are you going in the water? Sybil said. I'm seriously considering it. I'm giving it plenty of thought, Sybil. You'll be glad to know. Sybil prodded the rubber float from the young man something and he was using as a headrest. It needs air, she said. You're right. It needs more air than I'm willing to admit. He took his fists away and let his chin rest on the sand. Sybil, he said. You're looking fine. It's good to see you. Tell me about yourself. He reached in front of him and took both of Sybil's ankles in his hands. I'm Capricorn, he said. What are you? Sharon Lipschitz said you let her sit on the piano seat with you? Sybil said. Sharon Lipschitz said that? Sybil nodded vigorously. She let go of her her ankles, drew in his hands, and laid the side of his face on his right forearm. Well, he said, you know how these things happen, Sybil. I was sitting there playing, and you were nowhere in sight, and Sharon Lipschitz came over and sat down next to me. I couldn't push her off now, could I? Yes. Oh, no. No, I couldn't do that, said the young man. I'll tell you what I did do, though. What? I pretended she was you. Sybil immediately stooped and began to dig in the sand. Let's go in the water, she said. All right, said the young man. I think I can work it in. Next time, push her off, Sybil said. Push her off. Sharon Lipschitz? Oh, Sharon Lipschitz, said the young man. How that name comes up, mixing memory and desire. He suddenly got to his feet. He looked at the ocean. Sybil, he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll see if we can catch a banana fish. A what? A banana fish, he said, and undid the belt of his robe. He took off the robe. His shoulders were white and narrow, and his trunks were royal blue. He folded the robe, first lengthwise and then in thirds, then rolled the towel he had used over his eyes, spread it out on the sand, and then laid the folded towel on top of it. He bent over, picked up the float, and secured it under his right arm. Then, with his left hand, he took Sybil's hand. The two started to walk down to the ocean. 
I imagine you've seen quite a few banana fish in your day, the young man said. Sybil shook her head. You haven't? Where do you live anyway? I don't know, said Sybil. Sure you know, you must know. Stern Lipschitz knows where she lives, and she's only three and a half. Sybil stopped walking and yanked a hand away from him. She picked up an ordinary beach shell and looked at it with elaborate interest. She threw it down. Whirlywood, Connecticut, she said, and resumed walking, stomach foremost. Whirlywood, Connecticut, said the young man. Is that anywhere near Whirlywood, Connecticut, by any chance? Sybil looked at him. That's where I live, she said. I live in Whirlywood, Connecticut. She ran a few steps ahead of him, caught up with her left foot and her left hand, and hopped two or three times. You have no idea how clear that makes me everything. You living there, the young man said. Sybil released her foot. Did you read Little Black Sambo? She asked. It's very funny you asked me that. It so happens I just finished reading it last night. He reached down and took back Sybil's hand. What did you think of it? He asked her. Did the tigers run all around that tree? I thought they'd never stop. I never saw so many tigers. There are only six, Sybil said. Only six, said the young man. Do you call that only? Do you like wax? Sybil asked. Do I like what? Wax. Very much, don't you? Sybil nodded. Do you like olives? She asked. Olives, yes. Olives and wax. I never go any place without those two. Do you like Sharon Lipschitz? Sybil asked. Yes, yes I do. What I like particularly about her is that she never does anything mean to little dogs in the lobby at the hotel. That little toy bull that belongs to the lady from Canada, for instance. You probably won't believe this, but some little girls like to point that little dog with balloon sticks. Sharon doesn't. She's never mean or unkind. That's why I like her so much. Sybil was silent. I like to chew candles, she said finally. Who doesn't, said the young man, getting his feet wet. Wow, it's cold. <laughs> he dropped the rubber float on his back. No, wait a sec, Sybil. What'll we get out? We gotta get out in the water a bit. They waded out till the water was up to Sybil's waist. Then the young man picked it up and laid it down on his stomach on the float. Don't you ever wear a bathing cap or anything? He asked. Don't let go, Sybil ordered. You hold me now. Miss Carpenter, please, I know my business, the young man said. You just keep your eyes open for any banana fish. This is the perfect day for banana fish. I don't see any, Sybil said. That's understandable. Their habits are very peculiar. Kept pushing the float. The water was not quite up to his chest. They lead a very tragic life. You know what they do, Sybil? She shook her head. Well, they swim into a hole. Where there's a lot of bananas. They're very ordinary looking fish when they swim in. But once they get in, they behave like pigs. Why, I've known some banana fish to swim into a banana hole and eat as many as 78 bananas. He edged the float to, and its passenger to a foot closer to the horizon. Naturally, after that, they'll go so fat that they can't ever get out of the hole again. Can't fit through the door. Not too far out, Sybil said. What happens to them? What happens to who? The banana fish. Oh, you mean after they eat so many bananas, they can't get out of the banana hole? Yeah. Well, I hate to tell you, Sybil, they die. Why? Well, they get banana fever. It's a terrible disease. Here comes a wave. 
Sybil said nervously. We'll ignore it. We'll snub it, said the old man. Two snubs. He took Sybil's ankles in his hands and pressed down and forward. The float nosed over the top of the wave. The water soaked Sybil's blonde hair, but her scream was full of pleasure. With her hand, when the float was level again, they wiped away a flat, wet band of her hair from her eyes and reported, I just saw one. Saw what, my love? A banana fish. Oh, my God, no, said the young man. Did he have any bananas in his mouth? Yeah, six. The young man picked up one of Sybil's wet feet, which were drooping over the end of the float, and kissed the arch. Hey, said the owner of the foot, turning around. Hey, yourself, we're going in now. You had enough? No. Sorry, he said. And he pushed the float towards shore until Sybil got off it. He carried it the rest of the way. Goodbye, said Sybil, and ran without regret in the direction of the hotel. The young man put on his robe, closed the lapels tight, and jammed his towel into his pocket. He picked up the slimy, wet, cumbersome float and put it under his arm. He plodded alone through the soft, hot sand toward the hotel. On the sub-main floor of the hotel, which the management directed Bathers to use, a woman with zinc salve on her nose got into the elevator with the young man. I see you're looking at my feet, he said to her within the car was in motion. I beg your pardon, said the woman. I said, I see you're looking at my feet. I beg your pardon. I happen to be looking at the floor, said the woman, and faced the door of the car. If you want to look at my feet, say so, said the young man. But don't be a goddamn sneak about it. Let me out of here, please, said the woman quickly to the girl operating the car. The car doors opened and the woman got out without looking back. I have two normal feet and I can't see the slightest goddamn reason why anyone would stare at them, said the young man. Five, please. He took his room key out of the road pocket. He got off on the fifth floor, walked down the hall and let himself into 507. The room smelled of new catskin luggage and nail lacquer remover. He glanced at the girl lying asleep on one side of the twin beds. Then he went over to one of the pieces of luggage, opened it, and from under a pile of shorts and undershirts, took out an Ortigee's Caliber 7.65 automatic. He released the magazine, looked at it, then reinserted it. He cocked the piece. Then he went over and sat down on the unoccupied twin bed, looked at the girl, aimed the pistol, and fired a bullet through his rat temple. One Hour to Madness and Joy by Walt Whitman One hour to madness and joy O furious, O confine me not What is this that frees me so in storms? What do my shouts amid lightnings and raving winds mean? O to drink the mystic deliria deeper than any other man O savage and tender achings I bequeath them to you, my children I tell them to you for reasons O bride and bride, O to be yielded to you, whoever you are, and you to be yielded to me in defiance of the world, O to return to paradise, O bashful and feminine, O to draw you to me, to plant on you for the first time the lips of a determined, wuh, man, O the puzzle, 
the thrice-tied knot, the deep and dark pool all untied and illuminated. Oh, to speed where there is space enough and air enough at last to be absolved from previous ties and conventions, I from mine and you from yours, to find a new unthought of nonchalance with the best of nature, to have the gag removed from one's mouth, to have the feeling today or any day that I am sufficient as I am, or something unapproved, something in a trance, to escape utterly from others' anchors and holds, to drive free, to love free, to dash reckless and dash dangerous, to court destruction with taunts, with invitations, to ascend, to leap to the heavens of the love indicated to me, to rise thither with my inebriated soul, to be lost if I must be so, to feed the remainder of life with one hour of fullness and freedom, with one brief hour of madness and joy. Mama Lee Bella Story Hour.